You know, as we've gone through the Psalms this summer, we've seen that there are several different kinds of Psalms, several different categories. There's Psalms of Thanksgiving, uh, where David and, and other writers in the Psalms are writing about some particular deliverance or some blessing that God has bestowed upon them. There's Psalms of petition that ask for deliverance through a difficult circumstance, difficult situation. There's Psalms of lament over sin. And again, we have some very famous ones by David uh, concerning that. We also have Psalms of lament by the nation of Israel as a whole as they've recognized that they've broken covenant with God and are suffering the consequences of that. There's imprecatory Psalms, a little bit different genre of psalm. Uh, The psalmist in that case is praying down vengeance upon not just his enemies, but the Lord's enemies. But tonight we're going to be looking at probably one of the predominant themes in the psalms. It's a psalm of praise in Psalm 29. The major theme of the praise psalms is God is the great king who rules over all things, especially as protector of his people. There's an emphasis upon the sovereign Lord as the only one worthy of worship and devotion. The God of Israel, the true God, is the only one worthy of worship. God will have no rivals. He is the only God. He's the one that's made us. He's the one to whom we belong. And he's the one that's to be worshipped. That's exactly what we'll see in Psalm 29. I trust you have a handout. If not, we'll have somebody get you one. But you see the introductory statement there. Through three representative realms of the Lord's supremacy, David develops the propriety of praise to the one true God. And the name of God that's used in this particular psalm, Psalm 29, is Yahweh. That's the Hebrew term. You recall the origin of that name when God was speaking to Moses and calling him to lead the people of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. He had this conversation. Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I shall say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is Exodus chapter 3, verse 15, 14, sorry. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. That's a great uh, description of God's eternality, the fact that he is. He was, he is, he is coming, the book of Revelation says. It speaks of his eternal nature. And the name Yahweh is related to that I am in Exodus 3.15. This is the one true God. It's the God of Israel. And that's the historical context in Psalm 29. His name is Yahweh. And that was his covenantal seal. His name was the seal on the covenantal relationship he had between himself as the great king and the people of Israel. But, of course, this is also our God. This is the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church the head of us as a group of believers in this local assembly of which we are a part and of which we are a part of a a larger worldwide assembly of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's read through this psalm in its entirety in Psalm 29, and then we'll work through it a section at a time according to the outline that you have in front of you. Psalm 29, a psalm of David I'll be reading from the New American Standard. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. Another way to translate that last phrase is in the beauty of holiness. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. 
The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. And he makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everything says glory. The Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. As I said earlier, this is a psalm which declares God's supremacy and reign over all that he has made, but in three distinct realms. The first is his reign over the heavenly beings. The Lord's supremacy over heavenly beings commands praise. The sons of the mighty, we read in verse 1, also can be translated as the sons of God. This is, as it is in other places in the Old Testament, a reference to his angels, to his angelic messengers. They are called sons of God because they're direct creations of God. They don't reproduce. They don't beget other angels. Even Adam, in the genealogy of Christ in Luke chapter 3, is called a son of God or one begotten of God because he was directly made by God. He didn't come through another man. So what's happening here is that David and the congregation that sings this psalm are calling on these heavenly beings, the angels, to join them in worship as they give the Lord his due worship and praise, as they give him the glory that's due to his name and reputation. And we actually have a couple of good examples of this in both the Old Testament and the New. We'll look at one each. And as I read these references, I want you to notice the emphasis on God's holiness. We saw there in the last part of verse 2, it talks about worshiping the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And we'll see that same thing happening as we look at these examples of angelic worship. The first is in Isaiah chapter 6. You recall that Isaiah is being commissioned as a prophet of the Lord. And when he sees in a vision the seraphim, which is a special class of angels, and they are crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. It sounds very similar to the language of Psalm 29. It's recognizing that all that God has made in his creation declares his glory. In the New Testament, Revelation chapter 4 we have four living creatures and the 24 elders, which I believe in both cases are talking about angels, two different groups of angels that are especially close to the throne of God. That's the setting in Revelation chapter 4. And Revelation 4, 8 says this, The four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is, and who is to come. Notice the connection there again. It's talking about the eternal nature of God. The fact that he has always been. He always is. He always will be. And then again in verse 11. Worthy art thou, O Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou dost create all things. And because of thy, thy will they existed and were created. In its essence then, worship is recognizing who God is and responding accordingly. The angels do that continually. They do that day and night. And we, as children of God, through the new birth, begotten by him through the new birth, should do that same thing. Now, one of the ways that we do that certainly is when we gather together on Sunday, morning and evening, to hear the word of God, to worship together, to sing his praises. That's one form of worship for us. 
But worship also takes place throughout the week as we serve God in whatever we're doing. Remember in Paul's letter to the Romans, he tells us that we're to present our bodies as living and holy sacrifices, acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service of worship. So we worship God in every aspect of our lives, in the way that we live, in the way that we work, in the way that we do our schoolwork. We're to do that as unto the Lord and as an act of worship to him. Well, God not only reigns over the angelic beings, he also reigns over the forces of nature. I'm not talking about Mother Nature. I don't particularly like that phrase. But God has forces of nature that he employs for his purposes. And the bulk of the psalm is dealing with this. As Howard said this morning, it's really a a psalm about a thunderstorm. And that's what we're going to see in verses 3 through 9. The Lord's supremacy over the forces of nature consummates in praise. This is really the heart of the psalm. And we see this phrase that runs throughout these verses, the voice of the Lord. It appears seven times in these seven verses. And the context here is not talking about an audible voice with intelligible language, the way that the word of the Lord is, for example. We see that phrase often in the prophets. And that's a direct communication from God to one of his spokesmen and that he in turn communicates to the people. This is the voice of the Lord as it's manifested in the phenomena of a thunderstorm. And I have to confess, uh, I think with Howard, that I love thunderstorms. I love to hear the power of God as he speaks through one, especially at the beach or someplace where you can be out there and observe the ocean and see the lightning flashes at a safe distance out there in the ocean and uh, just listen to the power of God. We're going to talk more about that phenomenon of thunder. But I think there's, you know, you can think about if any of you have seen the movie Luther, the fact that Luther himself was shaken to his core by a thunderstorm. It's what brought about his conversion. Um, So God uses those for his purpose. There's a fellow named James Hamilton that I don't know much about, quite frankly, but he's quoted by Spurgeon in his commentary of the Psalms, and he writes this. There's no phenomena in nature as awful as a thunderstorm, and almost every poet from Homer and Virgil down to Dante and Milton has described it. In the Bible, too, we have a thunderstorm, the 29th Psalm. The description of a tempest which, rising from the Mediterranean and traveling by Lebanon and along the inland mountains, reaches Jerusalem and sends the people into the temple porticos for refuge. And besides these touches of terror, which the geographical progress of the tornado has described, it derives a sacred vitality and power from the presence of Jehovah in each successive peal, each successive peal of thunder, that is. Verses 3 through 9 describe such a storm. And it's really, as you think about David being, we don't know exactly where he was when he wrote this psalm, but I think it's safe to say he's probably somewhere in the interior of Israel. He's from the tribe of Judah. And we have a map here, actually. Luke, if you could flash that up here for us. I don't have the remote clicker up here unless it's on the podium. Um, But you can just step through. It'll be fine. So if we think first of David being somewhere in this area. That's, that circle shows Jerusalem and where the, uh, the tribe of Judah would have dwelt, their land allotment. He's viewing it first from the Great Sea, the Mediterranean out to the west, and then he moves from there to the area of Lebanon, which is just north of Israel proper. We'll talk more about that area. He talks about Syrian next, which is another name for Mount Hermon. That's up there to the north. And then it's, it's as if the storm just moves down through the whole of Israel down to the area of Kadesh. Kadesh would be down in uh, what's known as the Arabah, the southern part of Israel. 
So we not only have the full geographic spread of the land of promise, but also all the topography that's involved from the mountains in the north to the desert area in the south. Thank you, Howard. Appreciate that. Okay, let's look first in verses 3 through, well, in verse 3, where David is looking to the west, and he's speaking about the fact that the Lord reigns supreme over the seas. He's looking west to the Mediterranean Sea, which is part of the vast waters that cover three-quarters of the earth's surface. Um, In Old Testament times, and even to some degree today, the sea was a place of powerful waters and storms that man can't tame. I mean, we, we have virtually no power. We've, we've developed technology to where we can sail the seas and we can cross uh, these vast bodies of water to get from one nation to the other, but we can't control them. In Old Testament times, it was also seen as a very dangerous place, full of sea monsters, a place of chaos and danger. And yet, God sits upon these waters and reigns over them. God is the one who made those dangerous sea monsters. He's the one who made all the other sea life that teems under the oceans. We're about ready to get to, to go to the beach ourselves. Our family is leaving next Saturday to go down to Amelia Island. I like to go see the pond at least once a year just to, to be down there and see that huge creation of God and to think about all that's under there. I mean, we don't, it's another world under there. And it's teeming with all sorts of life. And we don't often think about that unless we're watching a program on National Geographic or unless you're actually at the ocean. I like to just sit out there and stare across the ocean and think about the, the nations that are on the other side and just think about all that's under there. Psalm 104 is another psalm of praise that talks about this. Psalm 104, verses 24 through 26 says this, O Lord, how many are thy works! In wisdom thou hast made them all. The earth is full of thy possessions. There is the sea great and broad, in which are swarms without number, animals, both small and great. There the ships move along, and Leviathan, which thou hast formed to sport in it. Leviathan, of course, is that very famous sea monster that's talked about so much in the book of Job. The emphasis there being on the fact that God is the one that made this huge creature, not Job, not any other man for that matter, and God is the only one that can truly control it. But God does control it. He rules over it. God is also the one who controls the sea's waves and its boundaries. God himself speaking to Job in Job 38, verses 8 through 11, says this. Who enclosed the sea with doors? When bursting forth, it went out from the womb. When I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band. And I placed boundaries on it. Now, there's a reason that the water at the ocean doesn't come up any further than it does. God has defined those boundaries. I set a bolt and doors. And I said, thus far you shall come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves stop. God is the one also who throws down those storms on the sea and causes them to stop again. We have an excellent example of this in the book of Jonah. In fact, the whole book of Jonah is a book that testifies to the sovereignty of God over all of his creation. You're familiar with that story. We won't go through the whole book. But the storm scene in chapter 1 begins with this. And the Lord hurled a great storm, a great wind on the sea. And there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship that Jonah and his shipmates was about to break up. That same scene ends with these words in verse 12 of chapter 1. And he, Jonah, said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. 
And then skipping down to verse 15, so they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. We have the example of Christ himself as one who was able to stop a raging sea immediately. Immediately the wind stopped and the waters became calm. And of course Christ was God in the flesh. But indeed, as we read in these verses, the voice of the Lord is upon the many waters and he reigns over them all. Now we go to the north. The Lord reigns supreme over the high country in Lebanon. The storm has moved to the north, and we're in that mountainous country of Lebanon, an area that's known not only for its mountains, but also for its great cedar trees. These are big trees. The average height is about 85 feet. Some have measured over 100 feet tall. They can be as big as 40 feet in circumference, and the spread of their branches is sometimes as wide as the height of the tree. The Lebanon cedar in the Bible is used primarily for large buildings and structures or supporting beams and pillars in those buildings, including the temple. They're also used as ship, ship's masts. So that gives you an idea of the size of these trees. But the verses here indicate that these massive trees are no match for the voice of the Lord. He splinters them like toothpicks. The thunder of his voice also affects the large mountains in this area, the mountainous area of Lebanon and, again, Syrian is the name of Mount Hermon, another mountain in that area. They're compared to these frisky young farm animals, a young calf or an ox, that you've probably some of you have grown up on a farm and seen the way that they dance and shake around when they get frisky. The thunderous shout of the Lord is so powerful that these huge mountains appear to move in the same way as these animals. It's because the power of because of the power of his voice. Verse 7 says that the voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. He's not not talking about a bonfire somewhere on the earth. He's talking about lightning bolts. He's talking about fire on steroids, if you will. And you think about the tremendous power that's contained in each bolt of lightning. I'm sure all of you at some time or another have had an experience with lightning. Beverly and I were at our house recently, and we've had a number of thunderstorms over the last 10 days. Uh, we were in the kitchen, and one of the closest lightning shots that I've ever witnessed came that time. I mean, it's a huge flash of light that came through the kitchen window and immediately a clap of thunder afterward. Um, I'm sure all of you have had that kind of experience with lightning. The estimates range that somewhere, now think about this, somewhere between 6,000 and 24,000 people are killed around the world every year due to direct lightning shots. Now, that's a broad range, I know, and it's hard to estimate that number in the first place. But these numbers don't even include the deaths to secondary effects of lightning, such as ground currents, fires, explosions, in uh, less densely populated areas like the far east of Russia and Siberia. Lightning strikes are one of the major causes of forest fires and all the destruction that goes with that. But the point is that God is the one that initiates that lightning. He's the one that controls its path. He's the one that causes it to hit its mark. We have scripture that testifies to this as well. Jeremiah 51, 16. When he utters his voice, there's a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he causes the clouds to ascend from the end of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. And then again, in Job chapter 36, Job's a great book that describes all this natural phenomena that, that God has created and controls. Job 36, 32 says, He covers his hands with the lightning and commands it 
to strike the mark. Well, we've looked to the west. We've looked to the north. The storm moves down over the land of Israel. It moves to the south. And God, Yahweh, reigns supreme over the desert country down in the south. This is the land, again, that's known as the Arabah. It's south and west of the Dead Sea. And it is a desert wilderness. But God reigns over this area as well. These verses describe how he causes the deers to calf, or an alternate reading here says he causes the trees to shake. And I I don't want to get into this to great detail, but there's a Hebrew word there, depending on the vowel pointing of that word that can be translated as either deer or trees. And there's disagreement about which one it is. But the, the ultimate effect is the same. It's the power of the voice of the Lord that either causes the deer to give birth perhaps prematurely, shaking him and frightening him to do that, or it causes the trees to writhe or shake, and that fits the context of the rest of of this psalm. Verse 9c is the magnification of God's supremacy expressed. All of what we've read so far about the storm leads to this climax. In his temple, everything says glory. Again, it's recognizing that all this is created by God. All of it comes from his hand. All of it is a demonstration of his power and his strength. Glory to God as he reigns over all. Now, we read this word temple here, and as normally we do in Scripture, when we see that word, we think about a particular building in the city of Jerusalem, God's special dwelling place on the earth. And I would say that most of the time when we read temple in the Bible, that is what it's talking about. But I think in this context, the meaning is broader. Uh, He's talking about God's temple as being his property, his palace, which is the whole world. We've already seen the whole world is full of his glory. The whole world is full of his created works. And he displays his glory as he storms through the world. The human part of that proclamation, and it is both an animate and inanimate proclamation. Those trees are declaring his glory even as they splinter below at his hand. But the human part of that proclamation of glory to God is one of humility, joy, and understanding. We recognize as those who know the Lord, as those who know the power behind the storm, even as we witness them here in this part of the world, that a storm is not just a random outbreak by Mother Nature. It's not a display of hostile forces by unknown gods, as the pagans of David's day thought and as many pagan pagan people in the world today believe. It is the voice of our Lord. It's the voice of the Creator, and He's speaking with power and strength through the elements of creation. That brings us to the third realm of the Lord's supremacy, and that is His supremacy over humanity. The Lord's supremacy over humanity calls for praise in verses 10 through 11. First, because of his position. The first part of verse 10 says that God sat as king over the flood. Now, the word here that's used for flood is used in only one other place in the Bible, in chapter 6 through 11 of the book of Genesis. So obviously here it's talking about the worldwide flood that God used. You talk about a storm. That was the ultimate display of God's power. He not only caused it to rain, he also broke up the fountains of the deep and he covered the entire world, the highest mountain peaks, for a period of a year to wipe out his creation and start all over again. And yet, 
God reigned fully over that event. He predicted it. He delivered Noah and his family and the animals on the ark through it. He brought it to an end exactly when he wanted to bring it to an end. And he brought life back to the earth. The Lord continues to reign not only over every other weather event of nature that we see today, but over all of time. And he will continue to do so right up until the end of this age. Now, we know that at the end of the great flood, God promised never to destroy the world again by fire. But he did say, and Second Peter talks about this, that he will destroy the world again. I'm sorry, I think I said fire. He'll never destroy the world again by flood, by water, but he will destroy it again by fire. Second Peter 3, verses 3 through 7 says this. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, where's the promise of his coming? He's talking about the return of Christ here. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And he's going to go on, go on to explain why they are wrong when they say that. And the reason that they are wrong is because the great flood came and destroyed the whole creation and God renewed it. That's what it says in verse 5. When they maintain this, it escapes their notice by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But the present heavens and earth... That's the one still that we're living in today. The present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. God promised after the great flood never again to destroy the world by water, but he will destroy it in the future by fire. And we today live between these two great events, between the flood past that we get occasional rainbow reminders of God's mercy and the fact that he, he promised, even though we've had strong rainstorms and local floods all over the world ever since the Great Flood, he's promised never to destroy the world again by water. But we live also looking forward to that future event when God will bring a fiery judgment, of ju a fire judgment upon the world. And we're reminded that God reigns supreme over all of that time. Finally, the Lord's supremacy over humanity calls for praise because of his provisions. This is in verse 11, and we're breaking it up into two points. His provisions, one being his protection. God gave strength and protected Noah and his family through the flood because they believed his word and acted upon it when, when nobody else did. You know, the New Testament tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Over a period of 120 years, he was building the ark as a testimony to the fact of what God was going to do, even though it had never rained before. And yet only Noah and his family entered the ark, acting in faith. God has also given strength and protection to the faithful remnant of Israel who trusted in his promise through their history and lived accordingly. He continues to strengthen and protect his people today, not necessarily from trials or persecutions or even physical death, but he does protect them from the severity of his judgment and from the second death, which is an eternal separation from God. So he gives protection to his people. And the Lord also gives peace to his people. He blesses his people with peace. This psalm as a whole is a demonstration of God's tremendous power through what can be very frightening elements of a thunderstorm. Most of us, I don't think, think of a thunderstorm as something peaceful, but it can be. 
as you look out upon it because you recognize who it is that's behind the storm. And this psalm ends with something that's very much in contrast to the fiery elements of a thunderstorm. It gives a sense of tranquility and peace because we know as Father, the one who rules over the heavenly beings, the one who rules over all the earthly forces of nature, and the one who rules over all history and humanity. So there can be for us who know the Lord a quietness within the storm for those who belong to him.